0: Because exactly what they did was to provide that service uh, at at a reasonable cost and therefore were able to, despite the fact that they were the only game in town or in the country, they they could potentially have charged more if they wanted to, but they made more money by not doing that.
1: For Monday, May 27th, 2019, this is episode 36, Monopolies, AT&T yesterday, Facebook and Google today, how classical economics drives technology. In this episode, I interviewed Robert Binder, my father, and we discussed the history of AT&T, which had a major monopoly on the telephone systems for decades, leading until 1985, when the deregulation and breakup enabled opportunities for new businesses to emerge. This led to huge investments in new infrastructure and communication technology. If that hadn't happened, we wouldn't have the internet and communications that we do today. Also, this completely relates to Facebook and Google's monopoly on digital advertising. However, there are some key differences. Quick disclaimer, the opinions expressed in this podcast are Robert Binder's and not those of his employer. Welcome to the Beatle Moment Marketing Podcast, a short weekly exploration of marketing, technology, and career. I'm Emily Binder. I answer to no one, and I make this for you. Let's get on with the show. Welcome back to the Beatle Moment Marketing Podcast. I have an extra special guest here with me this week, Robert Binder who happens to also be my father and he's visiting here in Austin. Hi, Dad, how you doing?
0: Hi, great to be here with you, Emily.
1: I'm so excited to have you on. So everybody, a little background on Robert Binder. He is a senior engineer member of the technical staff at the Software Engineering Institute of Carnegie Mellon University. He has a rich and diverse background in tech, uh, started in 1976, so over 43 years, having worked on everything from mainframe computers to embedded cyber-physical systems, including quite a bit of work in institutions and financial markets in the Chicago area, including working for the CBOE, Chicago Board Options Exchange. Really interesting stuff. So welcome to the show, Dad.
0: Well, uh, glad to be here. Yeah, yeah this, is, this is fun. First for me.
1: Yeah. So the reason that we decided to record this is you and I were talking earlier this morning over waffles about AT&T and the history of telecom and the phone yeah. systems. And that got us talking about monopolies. But I thought, you know, thinking about audio, thinking about voice, thinking about tech, this mm. is so, this history is rich and interesting and it's applicable to today in so many ways. But you've got, you've got like, history of everything in your brain. And I just wanted to kind of get that out onto the podcast. So initially, we were talking about what were you doing in the 80s? Like before I was born, what led you to become a software engineer and then to specialize in testing? Mentioning your first big project at GTE. Tell us a little about that.
0: Well, yeah, I got involved in uh, software uh, sort of by accident, you know, in the 70s, you um, uh, software and uh, computing was not uh, anything like what it is today. It was uh, more narrowly uh, focused. It was still a big deal, and it had some very interesting aspects in it. And i was going to make a long story short. Uh, I got uh, into focusing on that uh, just before I, I completed graduate school, and then uh, finishing my um, MBA at the University of Chicago. Uh, that's uh, where the bug bit me, and then I got into software uh, at that point. So uh, that's also partly uh, what uh, is factored in the monopoly story that we'll, we'll talk about later.
1: Right, right. Um, so what was the deal with the project with GTE?
0: GTE was one of my first um, very big projects. It was a uh, for a company called GTE Automatic Electric. They were a competitor in producing switching systems and to a certain extent operating uh, specialized telephone networks. Uh, at, at the time uh, in the U.S., uh, there was only one telephone company, and that was AT&T, uh, AT&T. Ameri- American Telephone and Telegraph, <laughs> right. uh, as it was known. And uh, they operated all the wires, owned all the phones. You didn't you, in those days. You didn't own your own phone.
1: This is what I found so interesting. You were telling me people leased they're yeah. like their home phone in all of those old 50s 60s movies you see yes. those they didn't own those home phones yeah
0: if you if you, if you ever happen to turn over the, the back of one of those old uh, uh, phones you'll see it says property of you know Illinois Bell Telephone or AT&T company or something to that nature huh. and, and the, the wires by the way the wires that came into your house and went back to the central office as it was called also were property of the phone company. And you were not allowed to connect anything to them other than what they connected allowed you to connect to them.
1: That sounds like a phone being locked. Uh, like when you have your T-Mobile iPhone, it's a locked phone, right?
0: Uh, there are some similarities,
1: yeah. Or when you have to lease a router from Comcast
0: yes. or your modem. and in some ways, you know, those business models, they, they have a certain amount of economic sense to them and, uh, you know, they've carried over, yeah.
1: Yeah, well... Not letting people own their own things and having a monopoly. Oh wait, that reminds you of a modern tech company, uh, Facebook. Your data, monopoly. Yep. So, but before we talk about that, the thing that was so interesting you mentioned about AT and T was they they were working with what's called the monopolist demand curve. And what does that mean exactly?
0: Well, that that's uh, from a. a, a sp- sort of a specialization in economics called microeconomics and it's also known as the theory of the firm. And so it basically in a, in a theoretical way, it tries to characterize what makes sense for a business to do and how it interacts with markets and sets prices. The monopolist, you know, in a, uh, what's called a, a competitive market, no individual company has the ability to uh, control the price. Uh, in other words, they, they have to respond to supply and demand overall and try to set their price where they can sell enough product to make, make a profit, uh, and, and so can all the other participants in the market. And that, that tends to level itself out according to supply and demand. So they can't really set it anywhere they want. Gotcha. And uh, in, in the monopoly situation, it's a little different because the monopolist uh, really has little or no competition. And then, well, people will say, "Well, if I'm in a, in a monopoly position, why not just set the price as high as, is you know, or very high, exorbitantly high, and that way I can extract as much money as I can from uh, the marketplace?" Uh, this is not we see an example of this recently in the the, the uh, Mister Martin who who is now in prison for a number of things and is I think universally hated uh, because he tried to do exactly that with uh, a certain uh, kinds of uh, prescription drugs. Uh, It might have been smarter for Mr. Schriechelli to have actually followed the monopolist's uh, pricing model and the demand curve and setting his price so that he sold more of that good according to the demand for it and making a little bit of money off of lots of transactions Mm -hmm. as opposed to trying to make a very large amount of money off of a few transactions.
1: Right. So when you have a drug, like if it's uh, a drug for a certain kind of cancer or HIV AIDS and it's... Tens of thousands of dollars a month or more, you have a very small market who can bear that right. price.
0: Yeah. So it gets to be much, there, there are a lot of complications in it, but the principles still apply. Uh, the uh, people I knew in Silicon Valley used to say, you know, when talking about uh, how much of a share uh, the venture capital uh, would retain versus the uh, founders, they would say, well, do you want all of a grape or a slice of the watermelon? Ah.
1: That's, you know, that's something I think about. This is a little unrelated, but when you have an abundance mindset, it's not about how many ways can we slice this pie? How thin can we slice this pie? How can we get a bigger pie?
0: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, That that's kind of the, 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 the general principle.
1: Right. So you have... AT&T actually doing the monopolist demand curve intelligently. At this point, we're talking like 70s, 80s.
0: Well, AT&T was started, and I, I don't really know all the details of their history, but uh, you know, it started out as the Bell Telephone Company uh, in, at the turn of the last century and uh, became AT&T and, and rose to uh, wiring up the entire country uh, you know, in the 20s and 30s. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that they were able to do was to provide telephone service at a relatively low cost, uh, to the entire country. Uh, regulation at the time, you know, the, the uh, uh, sort of sense of uh, government and what was fair tended to be a factor in that as well. But it was also kind of made business sense for them. Yeah. Because exactly what they did was to provide that service uh, at, at a reasonable cost and therefore were able to, despite the fact that they were the only game in town or in the country, yeah. they, they could potentially have charged more if they wanted to, but they made more money by not doing that. Sure, and
1: you can look at, nowadays, Facebook with advertising. So Facebook and Google have a duopoly on advertising, digital. This is These are the behemoths. Amazon yeah, is a distant right. third, but gaining. Keep an eye on them, by the way. And voice advertising might be a thing soon enough. Facebook has this incredible platform. And I basically hate Facebook. Like, it's no secret. I think it's an awful company. I have made a lot of money off of Facebook running my business, running ads over many years because this is... The greatest deal in advertising you can reach a targeted audience for a very cheap amount per click the cost per click is so low however it has more than doubled and in recent years it has increased faster than ever before so what is the best deal in advertising won't be for long because it is getting so crowded but they're doing this well like they haven't made it exorbitant they haven't overpriced it like you're talking about with with the health and the drugs market but it's going to get more and more crowded because companies are realizing this is such an incredible deal to reach the super targeted audience. And it's, of course, Instagram included, Instagram advertising super effective. It won't stay that way for long. Yeah. People are going to look for the next shiny best deal, the cheap way to reach their audience.
0: Well, and of course, there, you know, it's a very complicated situation. There are, there are other economic factors at play as well. and. Uh, you know, Facebook is finding out that the, you know, the the power of monopoly uh, kind of, uh, it's a street that cuts both ways because they are now in the crosshairs of both of regulators in the United States, the European Union, and, and elsewhere, uh, and also kind of uh, being scrutinized uh, for uh, concerns related to privacy, which are, are quite well known.
1: Sure. The thing that's interesting to me is that I guess your average Facebook user probably doesn't even realize Facebook owns Instagram. I mean, these people are just they are the product and don't realize it. The the slice of the people who are listening to this podcast or understand the way that these models work, where the user, the data, that's the product, which is sold to advertisers, is few and far between. There's very little media literacy and understanding of how all of this works. It's not a simple model like it was with AT and T, where okay, I know I'm leasing my phone, and they provide a service, and they're probably not even listening to me. It's quite different now.
0: Well, uh, there were uh, times in the early stages of AT and T where uh, you know the uh, the operators, the the, the uh, persons <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> who, who set uh, uh, plugging and making the connections and the switching yeah. systems, sometimes listened in. Yeah, and, like, you know that's been been the source of lots of uh, parody and satire. Uh, but most in the 30s, one of the things that they realized was that uh, if uh, the phone system were to grow, put a, a phone in every house, which, by the way, in the 30s was very uncommon, um, uh, that uh, they would have to employ pretty much the entire population of the United States uh, making uh, switching connections. And that led to some very interesting engineering developments in automated switching systems, uh, which, uh, you know, there's, there's kind of a line that uh, goes up to, to the present day. Uh, it started out as electromechanical in huge uh, buildings uh, known as central offices, which you can still see in a lot of uh, older cities, and uh, became uh, powered by software and specialized computing equipment, and uh, you know that's continued to this day.
1: I'm just thinking, how do you scale this? We can't have every person in the country operating a switch. We need a machine to do it so that we can get this product out to more people. Two things. One... It's not scalable the way it is when it's done manually. Of course, you could see technology take over many times with examples like that. But two, I was going to ask you, do you think there was a curve, or was there skepticism early on, which was, oh, I don't need a telephone. I can just walk down the street if I need to talk to my neighbor, which translates to a lot of tech today, where people were a little, uh, I don't know, why do I need a personal computer? Why do I need a phone in my pocket? Why do I need email on me all the time? Why do I need voice technology?
0: Well, I think that, yeah, there are lots of interesting parallels there. And uh, certainly, uh, you know, I I can remember growing up in the 50s that, um, you know, telephones were still kind of unusual. In particular, making long-distance calls was a big deal. You know, if you wanted to talk to somebody on the other side of the country or or even, you know, uh, several hundred miles away, you know, it was something that was very expensive and uh, it took a setup and you, you carefully planned it and, and. uh you know, if you made a long distance call and, and uh, you didn't have a good reason for doing it, uh, somebody would probably yell at you for wasting <laughs> a lot of money.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I guess the takeaway here is the new technology that comes into place when it is scalable and it's not too expensive can be spread to the masses quite easily, adopted readily, yeah. and then becomes quotidian.
0: Right, yeah. And so... Uh, the, the economics that drive that are quite interesting. It drives what I think is sometimes referred to as the network effect. Uh, and the network effect on the economic side of that, I think, is that uh, the network effect being that the uh, value of a network increases with the square of the number of connections. Mm. So it's not just like adding, adding a, a, you know, d- doubling the size of the network does not effectively double its value. It, it increases it to the uh, power of two.
1: Exponential, not logarithmic. Right.
0: So that's you no know, so-called network effect. And I think uh, that uh, only thrives if the people who are providing the network uh, observe an economics that kind of follows with the monopolist demand curve. If they were pricing to gouge the customers, that would be a very big break on growth. So it's not simply the the, uh, the availability of the technology. It's kind of the economics that drives the behavior associated with it as well.
1: Very powerful. It is. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for talking with me about this, Dad. <laughs> it's
0: been fun. <laughs> right.
1: We'll have to do it again. <laughs> Brought to you by our friends at Pippa. Pippa is the simplest, smartest way to share your podcast. Visit Beatlemoment.com forward slash P I P P A to get a $25 Amazon gift card when you sign up. And we thank Pippa very much for their support of the show. For more about the show or to consult with me, visit BeatleMoment.com. Tweet me at Emily Bender. I'd love to hear from you. Thank you again for listening. I'll see you next week.